0: Let me pray just uh, again for our time in God's Word, and then we're going to dive right in. You've been in Ecclesiastes, so if uh, you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can uh, open to chapter 10. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this evening. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, you are big, and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the things I did before I was a pastor is be a manager at Best Buy, specifically over the Geek Squad. And if you don't know what the Geek Squad is, it's kind of like what it sounds like. We were a group of nerds, tech gurus who helped customers fight back against the attacks of technology. And by far, the most important thing we cared about to gauge our success was something called NPS. It was what Best Buy called their customer satisfaction score. You know what I'm talking about, right? Every store and every restaurant has it. Fill out from the bottom of your receipt, and you could win $5,000. Just let us know how we're doing. Well, when I was there, uh, we took that pretty seriously. But one thing you learn pretty quickly is that people don't go out of their way to praise good service. When you pay for service, you expect good service, and therefore you have to be truly exceptional. You have to have every facet of your business world-class for people to even notice. But on the other hand, your entire month's hard work Uh, And all the positive feedback can be drowned out by one misplaced word, one uh, exception to the rule, or even a client's misunderstanding. It can all be done, undone very quickly. Well, here's another story. I remember being at a restaurant a few years back here in town, and uh, a couple across the dining room really stood out to me because the man was screaming at the waitress. Now, he wasn't screaming because his steak wasn't done right or he was missing a side, He was screaming because something he wanted to order was not available that night. And I remember thinking, this is hilarious. What a fool! He's yelling at the waitress before he gets his food? I mean, if she doesn't spit in the food, I'm sure someone from the kitchen will. I might go over when he's in the restroom and spit in his food. Whether he realized it or not, that underappreciated waitress had a lot of power over him that night. And if she really wanted to, she could have made his night as miserable as he made hers. One more story. I read about a a man named Thomas Petain. He was part of a construction crew in New York City. He was working on a multi-floor facility in Queens that was going to be an elementary school upon its completion. Now, this is what Thomas did for a living. He was good at it. Every day for years, he would get up, he would get ready, he'd put on his boots, and he'd go to work. He was skilled at being uh, in construction. But one day in May 2014, working on the fifth floor, he tripped, he fell down an uh, unfinished elevator shaft, and he lost his life that day. And I tell you these three different stories, which at this point probably feel disconnected, but each one of them was brought to my mind by studying tonight's text. I hope they feel a little bit disconnected for you, because at first that's how I felt from this passage in chapter 10 and the first part of 11. The author, he writes all of these big claims throughout the book about the vanity and hevel of wealth, love, loss, and life, And it feels like at the end, he had some rando thoughts. He threw them against the wall, and chapter 10 is what stuck. Thank you, Pastor Sam. This is is an interesting passage. But I want to give you an example right up front. Listen to some of these profound statements. If a serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. That will change your life. (laughs) Here's my personal favorite from tonight. If a tree falls to the south or to the north... In the place where the tree falls, there it will be. That belongs on a post it on your mirror so you can look at it every single day. As we go through the chapter tonight, we're going to see that how finding a theme in this passage might feel like heaven, uh, but it is possible for us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to see what God is doing in chapter 10. And as the book of Ecclesiastes moves towards the end, towards the conclusion of the matter, the teacher is inviting us into the very process of the book, the discovery of a wiser wisdom. You've already heard it said in this book that wisdom only takes you so far. There are exceptions to Proverbs. Wisdom is not a promise. Think of Ecclesiastes 7.9, don't let your spirit rush to be angry for anger abides in the heart of a fool. So if I see injustice against the innocent on TV and anger swells up inside of me, am I a fool? I think we would say there are exceptions to the proverb. Ecclesiastes 5, 7 says, whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedures. And yet soldiers obey commands, and they're not always safe. Other proverbs might suggest we can't know the proper time or procedures. A significant part of wisdom is understanding generally how things operate under the sun, observing patterns, structures, knowing the fabric of how God created this world. But greater wisdom comes from knowing when the norms have exceptions, understanding when to apply one proverb and not another proverb, and acknowledging that there are foils to wisdom. So in Ecclesiastes, the teacher, we've seen he's a big fan of wisdom. Remember Ecclesiastes 2.13. And I realize that there is an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The teacher is the first one to commend wisdom over folly. Even if it's meaningless to chase after it, even if it's hevel to put your hope in achieving wisdom, nevertheless, it has practical benefits. And so as we come to our text tonight, this is what we're going to see Wisdom is good. It generally benefits us. It can help us live a more successful life, but wiser wisdom is understanding the foils to wisdom, the exceptions to knowledge, the things that will undo even the wisest plan and people. Wisdom is good, but wiser wisdom comes from expecting exceptions, owning what we can't know or control and then going for it. Wiser wisdom expects exceptions, owns what we can't know or control, and then goes for it. So let's work through our passage tonight. I'm going to do it chunk by chunk, chunk and we're going to see what the teacher has for us tonight. Here's the first thing the teacher tells us in verses 1 through 4. The teacher says, wisdom is undone by folly. Wisdom is great, but a tiny bit of foolishness can undo the lot. Verse 1, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks down the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. The teacher starts with an easy picture to understand, a comparison that's easy to grasp, especially if you have ever bought perfume or cologne. If you've bought these two precious products, you know it's not uncommon to drop $40 or $60 on just a couple ounces of this precious fluid. Even at $4 a gallon, gas is cheap compared to cologne or perfume. And so the teacher asks us to consider how something so precious could be undone by something as small as a fly. Cologne, in the ancient world and for middle school boys today, it covers the stench of normal life. Its purpose is to smell pleasant enough to outweigh the bad odor. But if perfume loses its smell, if it itself smells bad, then its purpose is undone. And so it is with wisdom and honor. Folly the size of a fly can undo great things. Wisdom is good. It's helpful for life. Honor is something we should go after. But a lifetime of wisdom and honor can be undone by even a little foolishness and it's sad but we see this all the time in our world don't we where something good something wise is undone by a little folly it's a christian leader who taught thousands of people wrote bookshelves full of books and ministered for years but one weekend away from home when she foolishly drank too much she steps out on her husband and the whole thing is undone It's the politician who pushes through honorable bills, drafts helpful legislation, bolsters a nation's economy, but he dishonors himself every time he opens his mouth and folly pours out. It's the person who loses their job because they come to work hungover. It's the concerned Christian who prays for opportunities to reach their neighbor, studies books of evangelism, studies apologetics to answer the objections, but then foolishly blocks half of their opportunities for meaningful conversations because they have a position bumper sticker on their car, or they put a sharp post on Facebook, or they wear clothing that say, I'm not in your camp. Even when the concerned Christian is right on some of these Positions, bumper stickers, Facebook posts, and divisive clothing, they never invite real conversation. They never invite real relationship. They only serve to publicly declare, this is the camp I'm in, you can stay away. Great things, good things, wise things can be undone by just a little bit of foolishness, and that sucks. It's one of the reasons why wisdom can feel like hell. But knowing that good things are undone by a little folly, it helps us guard against it. It helps us take precautions. It helps us to anticipate the exceptions to wisdom. Because folly is one of wisdom's foils. And wiser wisdom knows it. Verse 2. Wise hearts go to the right, foolish hearts go to the left. Right in most cultures and language has positive connotations. It means skillful or helpful or good, while left in most cultures and languages have negative connotations. Think of the word upright, that's a positive word. The word sinister, I didn't know this, comes from Latin, it means to the left side. The idea of this proverb is that the wise heart and foolish heart lead a person in opposite directions, one to the good life and one towards, towards destruction. Verse 3, folly is often easy to spot. The teacher says that the fool goes down the road and through their actions they proclaim, I'm a fool, I'm a fool. Now rather than explain this one, let's just take a look. We can see fo- folly go down the road, right? I mean, that right one, that's funny, but don't do that. That's foolish. This one here, I hope she doesn't sneeze or I'm driving behind her. And if that's real, that load is not getting to its intended destination. It is sometimes easy to see folly. We can see it coming a mile away. And verse 4, as the teacher continues, commends, uh, commends us to keep a cool head when a superior is upset with you. The teacher has already told us that generally fools have a hot head. Anger flares up in the fool's heart without understanding or concern for the outcome. But here, in this text that commends a cool head, it says it will normally diffuse anger. And think about how many times we've messed this up. I only need to think of myself. Have you ever had a parent be upset with you? I know I sure have, and I think about all the foolish times that I responded by yelling, saying something disrespectful, running out of the room, and things escalated. I acted like a fool. I so rarely did the right thing that I have to use my imagination just to picture what it would have been like if I would have said, Mom and Dad, I screwed up. I am wrong, and I understand why you are mad. I will never do it again. I so rarely did that. I have to use my imagination. Calmness diffuses anger. And so, friends, when your boss gets upset with you, if you have a police officer or a mother who's raging against you, a cool head will generally produce better results. Don't abandon your post. Stay the course. Do what you can to restore peace to the situation. Because that's the way of wisdom. Fools run from their problems. Well, the next foil to wisdom from the teacher, it comes in verses 5 through 7, where the teacher tells us that wisdom is turned inside out, upside down, when folly is promoted to high places. Wisdom can be turned upside down when a fool sits in the place of authority. Listen to 5 through 7. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. As it were, an error proceeding from a ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on ground like slaves. Great evil can come to a nation when the wrong person is promoted to the wrong place. Now, key for us to understand this passage is the word error in the first verse. In the original language, it is a word that means an unintentional error. It can come from negligence. It can come from an accident or forgetfulness, sure. But it would be a mistake to understand this as a leader knowingly or intentionally promoting a fool to the place of power. And at least, this, in that way, it makes it a little bit like the last. Because if a ruler, a king, or a CEO rules over a nation, a company, or an empire, the whole thing can be turned upside down by promoting the wrong person. Maybe the leader didn't do their homework. Maybe they prioritized the wrong objectives. Maybe they're fulfilling an IOU. But when a fool is in a high place, it can turn the world upside down. Now, notice how in this passage, the fool is not contrasted with the wise, but with the rich. The teacher has a very high view of the wealthy in his society. And perhaps for us, that sounds a little strange. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. First, you and I could make a long, long list of people who are rich, who have no place in in authority. And yet it happens all the time around us because of family ties, political affiliations, or fulfilling some payment for previous support. But although while there are many, many exceptions to this observation, generally in the teacher's day and in our own wise decision makers, prudent business people, And people who work hard accumulate wealth. Many of the wealthy families today can attribute their wealth to a wise leader in the past, even if that wisdom has been disregarded along the way. (laughs) The truth is, sudden acquisition of great wealth by a poor person is often spent foolishly, Whereas if a millionaire receives millions of dollars, they usually know how to use it. Again, there are many exceptions, but wise wisdom knows that a company, a church, a nation, can be turned upside down when folly is in the place of influence. Verses 8 through 11, our next foil. Wisdom at the wrong time is folly. Wisdom can be undone when it's used at the wrong time. Verses 8 through 11. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before its charm, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, the first four lines in this passage, verses 8 through 9, they reveal the unpredictability of normal life. Now, some have tried to read immorality into these lines to explain the negative things that are happening here, but it doesn't appear to be in the verses. These verses are talking about Thomas from our introduction, the construction worker who was great at his job, showed up to work every day, but then it took his life one unexpected day. It's the nurse whose career trajectory is undone because she is hit by a car outside the emergency room. The point is this, life is unpredictable. One day your normal task with no fault of your own could end your life. There's a certain wisdom that comes from accepting that this is just how it is under the sun. But the teacher still pushes us towards wisdom. He pitted the folly of the lumberjack who doesn't sharpen his axe against wisdom. Notice the dull axe. It can be undone through more strength. Persistence and sheer effort can sometimes overcome folly, but the teacher tells us wisdom is what brings success. Again, wisdom is practical. It brings the good life, but In verse 11, he shows us the foil, how wisdom can be foiled by bad timing. Now, I don't know a lot about snake charming. Do I have any snake charmers here tonight? No one? Okay. Well, if you're looking for a career opportunity, there isn't much competition, it looks like. It's a lost art. But here's what my research tells me. Snake charming in the ancient world was viewed as a mysterious craft, one that required a lot of wisdom and skill. But all of that's undone when it's used at the wrong time. Imagine a, a snake charmer with the snake bit onto his hand. The venom is coursing towards his heart, and he's like, I'm a snake charmer. I mean, that would be foolish, right? Bad timing is another foil to wisdom. Wisdom doesn't remove the risk of everyday life. It can't abolish the absurdity of the unpredictable, but it tilts the scale towards advantage when it's used at the right time. Wisdom is a good thing. It brings success if it's not used too late. That's wise wisdom. But folly, on the other hand, is stupid. Folly is ridiculous. If the teacher hasn't been clear on how he feels about folly, then in verses 12 through 15, he tells us just how stupid folly is. Listen to 12 through 15. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool Consume here him now. I got to pause here for just a moment because this one made me chuckle. In the Hebrew, the focus is on the mouth, on the lips. In fact, in both lines, it's the same Hebrew word. And so here's the picture it's giving us: when the wise man's mouth does its thing, words come out and bring him success. But when the fool's mouth opening does its thing, it opens and opens and opens and swallows his own self. I hope that doesn't give you nightmares, but here's how I would summarize that. It's saying, pull your lip over your head and swallow. That's how the fool do. But as the passage continues, it moves from the mouth opening to the words that come out of the mouth of the fool. So listen to 13 and 15. It says, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil. Madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of the fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So, why do the lips of the fool ruin him? It's because he talks on and on and on about things he doesn't understand. He talks on and on and on about things that no one can understand. Fools are windbags. Permit me a few minutes. I'm going to get on a soapbox here. I want to share two ways that I see Christians use their mouth for folly all the time. The first is when Christians yabber on and on and on about things that we don't understand adequately. And the second is like it. When Christians... Multiply their words about things that no one can understand. So first, I see so many Christians today, they toss around slogans and labels and summaries of what other people believe in a way that shows we have no idea what we're talking about. Too often Christians speak as if they have authority on matters they have not put the research in. Are you ready to get real? Because I think we've probably all been fools in this regard, if we're being honest. I see it in how Christians talk about other expressions of Christianity. Oh, those Baptists, can you believe that's what they believe? And yet the fool doesn't recognize the beliefs in the Baptist branch are as diverse as the frozen custard options at Culver's. The foolish Christian says you can't believe in the inspiration of Scripture and a non-literal creation or the use of the gift of tongues or that end-time view over there. But be careful, O foolish Christian, because I could assemble a panel of theologians who could, from the Bible, make you question your very own position. That goes for me, that goes for all of us when it comes to secondary issues of the faith. Another place I see this is when Christians make other tribes or ideologies the big bad boogeyman without truly understanding them. White supremacists, critical race theorists, and Marxists. We look at those boomers, look at those Gen Zers, the transgenders and the the gays. Oh, Christian, let's not be fools. The exception is that we know what we're talking about, not the norm. Christians too often will say, well, that's what they say, that's what they do. And people over there would say, that's not what I believe. Just last week, I saw a great example of wisdom in this regard. I uh, saw a pastor who wanted to teach about a couple of these categories that I just mentioned. And so here's what he did. He read books from authors in those camps. He wrote up a summary of their beliefs. And here's the best part he went and talked to people in each one of those camps and said, is this what you believe? Did I, have I understood your position correctly? What did I get wrong? And you know, that's how Christians should engage in disagreement. That's the way we can love people in the way that we would choose to be loved because personally I know as well as you when we we know what it's like to have our christian convictions misrepresented and be told that we are the camp that are the boogeyman we know what it's like and we have the opportunity to love others the way that we would like to be loved and so the first way i sometimes see christians align their lips with folly is to speak about things that we don't have adequate understanding about but the second way i see christians speak foolishly is when we talk about things that no one can understand. The teacher tells us that we can't know what will come next. No human being knows the future. Before we claim to know how the next generation is going to screw everything up, before we claim certainty of the next election cycle, before we join centuries of Christians who have been wrong, who mapped their experiences of the world into the book of Revelation. Before we prophesy doom and gloom or a new era of brighter days, we need to heed the words of the teacher. Here's what he says, A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. We remember what Jesus said. He said, that he didn't know the day or the hour. He told disciples, he says, don't concern yourself with times and seasons. One of the big ideas in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's expanded here, is that knowledge of the future has been denied to humanity. But the fool, he wearies himself out talking about it. Maybe I shouldn't say this in church, but the more I read Ecclesiastes and other wisdom literature, the more I hear it saying to me, Adam, keep your mouth shut. Fewer words are better than many. I don't need to tell everyone what I think. And unless I have put in the hard work, I've asked the humble questions, I've conversed with the right people, I think I should speak quietly and humbly. Folly is stupid, because fools speak beyond their understanding. Off soapbox. In the next, to second to last section of our text, verses 16 through 20, here's what the teacher tells us. He actually, in this section, he's making observations about wisdom and folly. The teacher makes observations about wisdom and folly. Let me read. I'll make comments as we go through. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. He's not a breakfast guy. That's okay. Verse 17, happy are you, O land, though, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Immature leaders fail a nation because their leadership team uses the privileges of their position for themselves and not for their tasks the teacher pits eating in the morning feasting in the morning to feasting at the proper time and then explains the proper time is for strength and not for drunkenness immature leaders and those on their team they tend to indulge in the spoils of their position without very much concern for their responsibility verse 18 through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks Laziness, the teacher says, is the disposition of the fool because they don't see the consequences of their inactivity. The people who sit around all day doing nothing, they end up with the roof falling in upon their head. Verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. That sounds good, right? This may sound a little strange, but if we remember how the teacher has spoken about money throughout Ecclesiastes, we know it's an enigma, it's hevel. You might pursue it all your life and then die a day short of being able to enjoy it. But in general, having money is better than not having money. It is practical. It's like bread and wine. Money has its purposes. Verse 20, even in your thoughts... Do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Here, the teacher warns us about talking about those who have authority over us, even in the private recesses of our mind, even in the quietness of our bedroom. How many of you have a Google Assistant or an Amazon Echo in your bedroom? Anyone? Wow. You guys are wise. I have one, and I'm okay if they hear me singing to myself in the mirror. That's, that's okay. But we did just see a few verses ago where the teacher told us that the wise person guards their words, but here the wiser person guards their thoughts. Our thoughts have the tendency of leaking out. They have a tendency of coming out. And if they are against someone in authority over us, then we need to watch out. Because if a leader gets... Wind that we are perhaps in rebellion against them they have the power to bring disaster into our life they have the power to make our lives miserable it's practical don't give those who have authority over you any inkling that you are in rebellion against them be against them because they can make our lives miserable Well, in the last section of our text tonight, we're going to be in the first six verses of chapter 11. And here, it all comes together. The teacher tells us in verses 1 through 6, wise wisdom accepts limitations and takes action. Wise wisdom, it accepts limitations, but still takes action. Our last six verses. It says, cast your bread upon the waters As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now casting bread on water has confused interpreters for years because all you really get is a soggy loaf of bread, But I think in the context, it'd be best for us to understand this as don't be idle. Diversify your efforts. Diversify your efforts to mitigate the unforeseen troubles that can come into life. Here's the point of the last section. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Use two in case one of the handles are faulty. We've all seen TV characters do this incorrectly, right? It's the person who bets all that they own on a horse because it's a sure thing. They've got insider information, and maybe that horse would have won, but no one expected it to trip 100 yards short of the finish line and break its legs. Putting all your efforts, all your time, all your money... On a sure thing is stupid, it's folly, because there is no such thing under the sun. Rather than trying to wait for the perfect time or to have a sure thing, the perfect situation, the teacher advises that we move forward in action and have backups, have reserves, have contingencies, have savings. Here's what the teacher says. We can't control what will happen. We can't anticipate every disaster that might come. So wisely diversify your efforts, but take action. You can see that the clouds are full. You know they're going to rain, but it might fall on your neighbor's field and not your own. Trees stand for an awfully long time, thousands of years, and we have no idea when they're going to fall. But even if we did, if they fall north or they fall south, we have little control over the matter. Here's the point. Whichever way they fall, there they lie. We have far less ability to control or predict the things in this life than we would care to admit. But the teacher advises action and anticipating the unexpected. When I lived in Chicagoland, one of the things I observed more often there than I do here is that many people were specialists in one field at the expense of others. It's the opposite of being a jack of all trades. Many were exceptional at what they trained in, what they went to school for, but they had to have someone else do everything else, not because they were lazy, but because they put all they had into their craft. Now, if I'm having surgery, I hope my surgeon is one of these people. I hope they put all their efforts into that basket. I don't want a jack-of-all-trades who can do many things well, but nothing exceptionally. I want the surgeon who studied for decades, opened 50,000 people before me, and can't even mow her lawn because she lives and breathes surgery. (laughs) Praise be to God for specialists, but it still highlights the point. If tomorrow a company releases nanobots that do the same surgery, cheaper, faster, and better, this surgeon is irrelevant. Irrelevant. Wisdom suggests mitigating risk by maybe gaining a second skill or having some savings in case you are made redundant by a robot. Another place I see this is in parenting. Now, I know many of you are not parents, though some of you may one day be called to be. I hear Pastor Sam really pushes parenthood in his sermons. <laughs> Pastor Jeff did say grow the church, but you know he has his own way of getting there, so... But seriously, I've talked to parents who are so paralyzed by fear of messing up their children that they don't parent. There are abundant experts out there, online personalities, and many authors. They all claim to have the exclusive truth on successful parenting. This feeding method or that. Disposable diapers or cloth. Discipline method A, B, or C. Let them cry or run to their side. Sleep with parents or teach them independence. Homeschool, private school, public school. And I barely scratched the surface. And so it's no wonder that parents can be paralyzed by fear because the fools out there say that successful parenting hinge on just a few of these key decisions. I want to be sensitive here. I'm not a parent. But I think the teacher's words are helpful in this regard if we wait to do everything until the exact right moment, if we believe the future of children hinge on just a few key decisions, then the teacher's words might be helpful. Because we can't control all the outcomes. We can't anticipate everything that will happen. But diversification and action are better than inactivity. What does diversification and action look like in parenting? It's taking advantage of all the little opportunities that one has to parent. When you wake a child up in the morning, you hug them, you kiss them, you tell them how much you love them. When you are making them breakfast, you sing God's word to them, even if they interrupt you every single time. When you strap them in the car seat, you say, may the seatbelt hold you tight, but God will hold you tighter. Maybe on the way to school, you pray for family, for safety, for fun. When they're old enough to text, send them encouraging text messages. When they get home, don't ask, was your day good? Yes or no. Ask them, what did you learn about God today? What about your day made you excited, happy, sad, or afraid? How did you see God at work today? The teacher might tell parents today, there are so many things you can't know. There are so many things you can't control But parenting isn't an event. It's not a couple of right decisions. It's lying in bed the night before and thinking about all the opportunities God will give you tomorrow to speak love into their life. Parenting is not an event. It's the accumulation of thousands upon thousands of moments through the life of your child which will far outweigh a few mistakes or bad decisions. Wisdom might suggest we can't anticipate or control all that's going to happen. But if we use all the opportunities that God gives us and take action, there's a much better chance that things will work out. It's not a promise, but generally, that's how things go. That's wise wisdom. And I believe this brings our whole passage together. Wisdom has foils. Wisdom will only take you so far. We can recognize generally how things go under the sun, but wiser wisdom would... Make us accept the hard fact that in the particulars, we don't know what's going to happen next and we can't control it anyway. But rather than let that lead us down a spiral of despair, accepting reality under the sun, the uncertainty, the chasing, the hevel under the sun, accepting it gives us freedom. Freedom to stop trying to manufacture the good life from within. Freedom to take action. Freedom to take life as it comes. Because worrying about things we can't control doesn't make life easier. It makes life harder. Incessantly thinking about the things we can't understand or know doesn't make life better. It prevents us from taking life in the moments that we've been given. Wiser wisdom accepts the limits that God has put upon us. Wiser wisdom frees us from trying to exceed our limitations. Wisdom is good, but wiser wisdom comes from expecting exceptions, owning what we can't know or control, and then going for it. Wisdom is good, but wiser wisdom comes from expecting exceptions, owning what you can't know or control, and then taking action. So may we all heed the voice of the preacher, the voice of the teacher, and be wise in our wisdom and avoid folly. Let me pray for each one of you. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the book of Ecclesiastes that we have recorded for us, inspired by the Spirit, the words of the teacher. Father, these are tough words. They challenge every one of us here. But Father, we pray that through your Spirit and continued revelation by your Word that we would come to be truly wise. We know the beginning of wisdom. It's fearing you. Father, may we all learn how to be wise in our wisdom, to not be paralyzed by uncertainty and things that you've withheld from us, but rather just receive from your good hand what you have poured out upon us. Father, I pray for each one of these young adults here and and all others who are here tonight. Father, I pray that you would bless them and you would keep them. You'd make your face shine upon them and you'd be gracious unto them. You'd give them favor and peace forever and ever and that their life groups tonight would be rich and fruitful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.